Well, thank you so much for coming back tonight. What I tried to do this morning was to uh, give an introduction to why I think this this issue of manhood and womanhood is so important by connecting it with the wider social, cultural issues of the day and show the link and why when I pose the questions of manhood and womanhood today, I don't merely pose them in terms of roles, but also in terms of nature and personhood, because it seems to me that the denial of the fundamental, important, personal differences between male and female reality are leading to the dismantling of creation as God intended it to be and bringing catastrophic changes into our culture and in our social life that dishonor God and are bad for people and will be the undoing of our civilization if there aren't gracious turnarounds. But I didn't do any serious biblical defending this morning, and I promised that tonight I would try to take you to the scriptures. I don't know whether you brought Bibles or not, and I regret that I didn't prepare a transparency of the key text tonight, but I'll try to say the text as often as I can so that you can think clearly about it, and if you have a Bible, we'll certainly use it. And then tomorrow morning, after I look tonight at 1 Timothy 2 with you, which talks about the role relationships of men and women in the church, I'll talk about marriage tomorrow morning in chapel. Um, And another thing, if you looked at the titles on the piece of paper that was given to you, I not only mentioned the body of Christ as a focus tonight, but the business world and the battlefield. And uh, as I was talking with my assistant back at church, whether I should do that or not, we we decided it would be worth the risk. Uh, because even though the Bible does not talk a lot about the role relationships of men and women in the business world or on the battlefield, say in the Persian Gulf War, Nevertheless, my conviction is that when it talks about the role relationships in the home and in the family rooted in creation, not culture and not sin, there are inescapable implications that if these differences that play themselves out at home and in the church are rooted in who we are by nature, then Things are going to be different in society as well. We don't cease to be male and female in the workplace. We don't cease to be male and female inside a tank or a MiG fighter or with our hands on an M16. And therefore, if differences are implied in who we are by nature, they're going to play themselves out in the world and on the battlefield. And uh, so it's risky for me to talk about those things because I can't point to verse and chapter as clearly as I can with others. And yet... I think it's artificial and almost like academic gamesmanship to say, sorry, I'm not going to talk about your real questions, like whether a woman should be a drill sergeant or whether she should fly a fighter plane, or whether she should be the president of a bank or so on. I'm just going to talk about safe questions like pastors and families. I'll try to get to that tonight, too, and say a little bit about it. Let me lay my cards on the table now tonight, which I only hinted at this morning and sum up my view called complementarity in a few thesis statements. Number one, all Christians, men and women, 
are called to be full-time ministers. I'm using the word minister in the sense of Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. People like me, pastor teachers, are called to equip the saints, you, to do the work of the ministry all the time. You are the ministers. And I delighted last Sunday, yesterday morning, when I tried to motivate my people to get into small groups, I delighted to say to them that the vast majority of the ministry at Bethlehem Baptist Church happens by the people brokering the grace of God from God to other people. First Peter 4.10 describes that kind of transaction. That's thesis number one, a radical orientation of all men and women on ministry, that is, using your life, your gifts, your personality, to take what God has given you and bend it outward for the blessing of other people in all the situations of your life. That's ministry. Ministry is not serving on committees. Ministry is not being hired by a church. Ministry is channeling grace from God to people. You look up First Peter 4.10 if you want to see that. Number two, that was number one. Number two. Uh, I already said number two, ministry is the stewarding of grace from God to people. So one was you're all ministers. Number two is ministry is fundamentally the stewarding or the brokering or the channeling of grace from God to other people. Number three, all the spiritual gifts mentioned in the New Testament, I believe, are dispersed to men and women and women. And I was eating lunch tonight, I mean supper, and in our discussion we said that that statement would likely be misunderstood because a lot of people would construe the pastorate as a gift. And then I'm going to wind up saying that I don't believe women are called to be pastors. And so I'm misleading you. I don't think the pastorate is a gift. I think teaching is a gift. I think administration is a gift. I think leadership is a gift. Those are all mentioned in the New Testament. Pastoring is a office. It's a calling when Ephesians 4 says the Lord gave some apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, he was talking about people being given to the church, not gifts being given to people. So I think I can stand by my statement that all the spiritual gifts I know of in the New Testament are not restricted to men or women. They are given freely. If a woman has a gift of teaching, the issue becomes how does she use it, not whether she has it. Number four the office of elder, overseer, pastor, those are all equivalent terms, I think. The office is the responsibility of spiritual men, not women, who aim to equip the saints for the ministry through oversight. And that's what we're going to work on tonight textually. Number five, the real action is the ministry of the people, not the work of those elders. Those elders have a servant equipping role to fit the lay people to do the works in small groups. The reason I'm so eager to get all of our people, men and women, into small groups is because I believe that if the body is functioning the way it's supposed to, women will be so fully engaged in day-to-day ministry, real hands-on ministry, that the question won't arise nearly as often as, why can't I be this one little thing in the church? Every time I speak on this in different places, a typical response is a woman stands up and, and kind of with this action, well, what can we do? As though I've said you can't do anything. 
And all I've said is out of the 10,000 ministries there are in the world, there's one you shouldn't do. Be a pastor. Exercise the unique uh, elder, overseer, leadership. Well, we'll talk more about about that. Um, well, maybe that's enough for summary of what the position would be. It's, it's a lot more detailed, a lot more to be said about marriage, which I haven't mentioned at all, but I will tomorrow morning. Let me just give you a summary of why I'm saying what I'm saying. Number one is because I see it taught in 1 Timothy 2.12, following, which we'll look at in a minute. Number two, because I see it in harmony with the overall picture of complementarity in Genesis 1 and 2 and in Paul's uh, teaching and Jesus' ministry. The texts, number three, the texts that are often brought in to say no, like Galatians 3.28, there's neither male nor female, or Acts 2, uh, Christ pours out the spirit of prophecy upon men and women. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. I see all those texts that are used to argue against what I'm saying as not at all being against what I'm saying, but rather as qualifying abuses and correcting misuses of what I'm saying. Number four, the aim of the New Testament, I think, is to redeem the distortions and the abuses that have come in with the fall of leadership of men in the home and the church and the submission of women in those roles. I don't think the New Testament dismantles creation, but rather redeems sinful distortions of creation. Um, And since these distinctions are taught in the Bible, I think, and I'll try to show you, And since I believe the Bible is inspired and since I believe God is good, therefore, I teach them, in spite of their being controversial, with a tremendous confidence that over the long haul, the Lord will take the truth and make it good for you. It's good for you. It's not a burden to carry. It's a blessing in your life. To embrace the truth will make your life deeper, richer, better than if you resist it. Okay, enough by way of introduction and summary, and let's let's go to the text now. I want to look tonight at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 14 with you, probably the most unpopular verses in the Bible in our day and age. Scarcely anybody preaches on these verses. They are so inflammatory, so offensive. People would storm out of many worship services if they were read. But they're in the Bible and they are therefore, in my view, God's word and therefore they're good for us and a glory to him. But they need to be interpreted like all the scriptures. So let me urge you to sit before them and be humble and ask questions about them. And tomorrow night, by the way, will be probably mainly devoted to trying to answer questions. Um, I, I can come prepared to to pose questions that I've learned over the years that people always have and answer them, or, or I can come and just let you ask questions, and I'm trying to discern and think and pray and ask people what I should do tomorrow night. So if you have ideas, you can let me know afterwards. But it'll be um, an answering objections. So if you're frustrated tonight at the end that you didn't get a chance to say, yeah, but what about this when you said that? Then tomorrow night, I hope you'll get a chance to to do that. Let a woman, this is verse 11, 
in 1 Timothy 2, let a woman learn in silence with all submissiveness. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over men. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Almost every sentence in there is explosively controversial. Almost every word. The three key words that I think we need to unpack and analyze in order to know what's being taught in verses 11 and 12 are the words silence, the word teaching, and the word authority. When it says, let a woman learn in silence, what does that mean? When it says, I permit no woman to teach, what does that mean? When it says, or to have authority over men, what does that mean? So those key words, silence, teaching, and authority in verse 11. And then when we've tried to get our handle on that, our hands on that, then verses 13 and 14 are even more controversial. What are these two arguments? The man was created first. And the woman was deceived, not the man. Those two arguments for this. So we're going to work our way systematically through these these things and in the end try to draw out broader implications for the body of Christ, the battlefield, and the business world. Okay. So verse 11, let a woman learn in silence. We want to talk about this word silence for just a minute. What What does Paul have in mind here? Women never talk. When do they never talk? Do they never talk in some given setting? Is it every situation in life? Is it total silence? The first observation I would make is that the the word for silence here, hesukia, is found in verse 2, or a slightly different form, hesukion, is found in verse 2. And notice the nuance that it has here in verse 2 where Paul says, pray that we may lead a quiet, there's the word, a quiet and peaceable life, godly and respectful in every way. See, sometimes words like silence carry immediate connotations in your mind that might be slightly off from what a contextual connotation might be. Now here, if you heard the word quiet, pray that God would let you lead a quiet life. Your first thought would not be a life in which you never speak. That's, that would not be the thought that would come to your mind. But that might be the thought that would come to your mind when the word is used a few verses later. And so we're tipped off by the use of the word in verse 2 that perhaps silence, let a woman learn in silence, may not mean uh, zip lips, never talking. It might have more of that flavor and connotation of a quiet and peaceable life. Now, here's another clue. The same word is used uh, at the end of verse 12, where he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over men, but, literally, to be silent. Now there, not to have authority over men and to be silent are, are made alternatives. So the the clue you get is that 
this silence or quietness has to do with not exercising authority over men. So there's a tip-off there that there may be a kind of speech that would call the man's authority or leadership into question and maybe a kind of quietness and attitude that would not call that leadership into question. Now, we're going to come back in a minute to that. My suggestion on the word silence is that it does not mean total non-speaking involvement in the local church, but rather would mean probably the kind of speech that would, whatever form it took, call into question the leadership of the men in the assembly or as the eldership of the church. Now, let's hold that as a possibility in your mind while we look at the second word, teaching. I permit, verse 12, I permit no woman to teach. Now, to answer what that means, how extensive is that meant? What clues are there in Paul in his nearer and wider context for whether that's an absolute bar on all kinds of teaching in all kinds of places or whether there's a unique focus to that? Now, one of the ways to get at that is to ask, um, are there teaching illustrations in the rest of Paul's writings where women do teach? And there are several. For example, in Titus chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says, older women are to teach the younger women. They are to teach what is good and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children. So immediately you know from these pastoral letters that he doesn't mean when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach, he does not mean all teaching in all situations because he says, I want the older women to teach the younger women. And then another illustration is found in 2 Timothy 3.14, where Paul tells Timothy, remember from whom you learned the scriptures. We know from chapter 1, verse 5, that he learned the scriptures from Eunice and Lois, his grandmother and his mother. His father was not a Christian and not even a, a Jew. And they were Jews and they faithfully imparted to this young man the teachings, just as the book of Proverbs says that mothers should do, along with fathers. And so there's a second kind of teaching, namely for mothers to children, that clearly is not included in the prohibition to not teach. A third example now outside of Paul is Priscilla in Acts 18.26. When Priscilla and Aquila heard Apollos, they took him and expounded to him, they took him and expounded to him the way of God more accurately. So there's an illustration of a couple in an informal setting meeting with a fellow who's got some things wrong in his theology and they together talk to him about the mistakes in his thinking and he comes to truth. So there's a woman involved in uh, truth impartation in that kind of setting along with her husband. So we know at least three kinds of teaching biblically are not included in this uh, prohibition, I do not permit a woman to teach. So we need to ask, um, are there any clues in the context that might give us a focus of what he does mean? If, if he doesn't mean those three, what does he mean? What kind of, of teaching is he prohibiting here? 
And I think the next phrase is probably the best way to put a governor and a control and a guide on this. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over men. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over men. So I think the teaching relates to the authority issue. There's a connection here somehow. If these other kinds of teaching seem to be permitted and endorsed by Paul, and we ask him, what do you have in mind then? He says, I'm talking about a situation where teaching goes together with authority. Now, here's an insight that I got several years ago that the more I've thought about it and the more I've read on this, it really helps to unlock one of the, the clear implications of this text. If you go back to the lists of qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3 and deacons, and you ask, what's the difference? What's the key difference between a deacon and an elder in the churches? You find that elders are called upon to be apt to teach. Deacons are not required to be apt to teach. And elders are charged with the governing or the ruling of the church. First Timothy 5.17, let elders who govern or rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Deacons are never charged with governance or oversight like that. All of the other qualifications for deacons and elders seem to overlap. I conclude, therefore, that the fundamental distinction between the eldership or the oversight of the pastoral uh, life of the church and the diaconal ministry level of the church is the preaching and the ruling or the governing or the uh, administrative leadership of the church. And then I come to 1 Timothy 2.12 and I find it remarkable that those two things are the very two things that Paul forbids to a woman. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority. So in the context of the pastoral letters, it seems like that's almost a paraphrase of, I do not permit a woman to assume the pastoral or the elder office. Does that make sense? I mean, whether you agree or not, you see the flow of the argument there that those two things, teaching and authority, are put there because those are the distinguishing features of eldership. So if if you ask me, then do you allow women to be deacons? I would say yes. Now, some of you may come out of church traditions where deacons are the authoritative rulers of the church. That's just bad ecclesiology. That's typical Baptist stuff. Have a pastor and a board of deacons who run the church. That's just not biblical. I grew up in that and I'm a Baptist. It took me about eight years to get my church to change that. Uh, but we do. And, and, and then the issue, should women be on that group, then it becomes more difficult. But if you have a group of elders who assume the role of leadership as it's laid out here, then just about everything under that is open to women in the church. Um, so if you ask me now, then, what is the teaching that's forbidden here? I would say um, the teaching that is forbidden is the sort of teaching that would carry the authority of the eldership. 
So it's teaching done as an elder in the office of an elder or like an elder. And uh, there's a lot of gray areas there. If you were to ask me, can a woman teach here, 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 here? I'd probably say yes, no, yes, no, yes. But some of that would be my own subjective judgment about what comes close to being elder kinds of, of leadership there. Let me talk for a few minutes now about this word authority. Um, we've already said that it, it's the authority of the eldership to govern or to lead or to oversee and guide the church. Um, it's very crucial to add this point. In Luke 22:26, Jesus said, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader become as the one who serves. Now, I remember debating with Alvira and Berkeley Michelson. Friends, Berkeley's gone to be with the Lord now. Alvira, who is always more strong than Berkeley anyway in these debates, at least emotionally, she came on that way. Whenever we talked and debated, this is the text they would bring up to me and say, you're always talking about leadership. You're always talking about governance. You're always talking about authority. Isn't the New Testament all about servanthood? I said, yes. Yes, and and my comeback would always be, it's, it's not either or, is it, since both are talked about, since elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. Surely that's not a contradiction of Luke 22, 26. And then I said, when Jesus in John 13 took off his outer garment, took a towel, bounded around himself like a slave, got down on his knees, took a bowl of water, and like a slave, washed his disciples' feet one after the other to their great and utter dismay, serving them. Nobody for one second doubted who the leader was in that room. He was on the floor, but he was the leader. There is no contradiction between servanthood and leadership. Leadership is to be humble. It is to be brokenhearted. It's not to be domineering and oppressive and self-exalting. But it's leadership nevertheless. And so I, I want to say what they say. I want to affirm what Jesus says here. Biblical leadership is servant leadership. The only kind of leadership I want to call husbands to, the only kind of leadership I want to call pastors to, is a humble Servant leadership that's willing to bind itself with a towel and willing to wash women's feet and men's feet and children's feet and work in the nursery and and talk to the lowly and put their arm around the nobodies in the church without any self-exalting sense of importance about them. First Peter five, three, do not domineer over those in your charge, speaking to the elders, but be examples to the flock. Second Timothy 10:8 God gave us this authority in the church not for tearing down or destroying but for building up. So I want to say a hearty, loud, strong yes to servanthood and lowliness. Blessed are the meek. They are the ones alone who will inherit the earth. But I do not see a contradiction between that and leadership, I see it as a style and form of Christ-like leadership, not a cancellation of leadership in the church. So elder authority is servant 
authority, even though it is used to govern the church. Let me just toss in here something that comes to mind. I use this in marriage. I probably won't say it tomorrow morning. It it applies well to the church. In a marriage, one of the little handles I give to couples for trying to help men assume their responsibility is, I ask, who in your relationship says let's most often? Let's go out to eat. Let's talk tonight about the kids. Let's get our finances in order. Let's get to church on time. Let's not spend money any longer on these. And I say to them, if the woman must constantly be the let's person, she'll be frustrated and he'll be nagged. Let's is the primary marriage word for leadership. It's not do it. It's not, that's not the primary marriage word for leadership. It's let's. Let's talk. Let's go out. Let's get this fixed. Let's straighten. Leadership is simply initiative moving a group or a couple forward in a vision and they can craft the vision together. How do you craft it together? You talk together. Who takes the initiative to get the talk going? If she has to, she will and she must. If she has to again and again and again and again over year after year, she'll come into my office and weep. I said to somebody this morning, when I came to Bethlehem, the most common anticipated marital dysfunction I anticipated was wives complaining perhaps about abusive husbands or sexually uh, active husbands who take advantage of them. Or something like that. It's been just the opposite over 13 years. A stream of women weeping in my office over lazy, no good, visionless, inactive, no leadership husbands who won't discipline the kids, won't handle the finances correctly, won't take initiative in getting the family to church, don't lead in devotions, won't pray at the table and call themselves Christians and are just loafers. Women, by and large, want... Men who lovingly, humbly, respectfully take initiative and make things happen in their family. Now I'm getting on to tomorrow morning and I've got to resist this here. Um, Let me try now to sum up defining authority and submission. Because we have those words here in this text now. Let a woman learn in silence with all submissiveness. And let the uh, men have the authority in the church. Here's my definition. Authority refers to the divine calling of spiritual gifted men to take primary responsibility, very important word, primary, primary responsibility as elders for Christ-like servant leadership and teaching in the church. Now, that's a, I, have, I have worked years on these sentences <laughs> because I've, I hear so many, I mean, I just have Choruses of critics around me as I as I say these things. And so I I pick words that I every one of them, I can give a rationale for why I use. And I know that it's overwhelming to try to hear a sentence like that and take it all in. But what else can I do? Here it is again. Authority refers to the divine calling of spiritual gifted men to take primary responsibility, not right 
I never use the word rights when I'm talking about a man in marriage or in the church because it misses the nuance of bearing a weight and a responsibility rather than than riding on the horse of rights. Bear primary responsibility as elders for Christ-like servant leadership and teaching in the church. Now, what then is submissiveness? What's submission? Submission refers, now I'm talking church and not marriage here. We'll talk about the same things for marriage tomorrow morning. Submission refers to the divine calling of all the rest of the church, men and women, to honor and affirm the leadership and teaching of the elders and to be equipped by it for the hundreds and hundreds of various ministries available to men and women in the service of Christ. The easiest way recently that I have talked about submission in marriage and the church is to say submission is being glad about the leadership of those who are your leaders. So if your wife, the submission I want from Noel is that she's glad I'm her husband and that I take initiatives and that I lead the family. That's it. If she's not glad about it, she'll act in certain ways that make it real clear to me that I'm not respected and affirmed as a leader and then I'll be unhappy. If she's glad about it, that gladness is what I think the Bible means by submission. Same thing in the church. Submission among the people of the church is to say, I'm so glad we have godly leaders in this church. Let's follow them. Let's pray for them. Let's support them. Let's let them lead. Let's follow them. This does not rule out their fallibility and their mistakes. And therefore, they are built in biblically, in constitutions and other ways, a way to call an elder into question appropriately without being uh, insubordinate. There are ways that elders submit themselves to be corrected and held accountable. So uh, let me conclude then by saying that the conclusion I come to with verses 11 and 12 is that the silence that women are called to is not a total or absolute silence, but an avoidance of the kind of speaking that would call into question or demean or usurp the leadership of the elders and pastors in the church. The kind of teaching that is forbidden is the teaching that carries the authority of the elders. An eldership teaching, a teaching role or a teaching office that uh, is interwoven with that kind of authority. And the kind of authority we're talking about is the pastoral eldership office, which is a servant role and not one that demands rights and rides roughshod over people. Now, let's move from there. You can keep your questions and write them down so that you'll remember them either later tonight or tomorrow. Let's go to verses 13 and 14 where the arguments are given. Paul, even though Paul's an apostle and has divine authority from the risen Christ, he argues. He always argues. He argues from Scripture. And he has two arguments here for why he has said what he has just said, namely about men having primary responsibility for leadership in the church. And his first argument is, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. That's his first argument. And his second argument is, Adam was not deceived but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So let's just take those one at a time. The first one is Adam was formed first and then Eve. So what Paul is doing, it sounds like, is that he read his Bible, chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, and he asked himself this question. 
Even though it says in Genesis 1 that he created man male and female and both in the image of God and of equal value as persons, nevertheless, when it gets to detailing the way of creation, he says that Adam was created first, he was put in the garden, he was given by God the moral guidelines for the garden, and then God looked and he said it isn't good for man to be alone. He lined up all the animals in front of him. He looked at them for the kind of thing he needs. He doesn't find it. Reason? You don't find the kind of needs that God was talking about met in animals. It's, it's personhood. Equal value in the image of God personhood. Therefore, God brings woman out of the side of man and presents her to the man for the fulfillment of that role. And Paul steps back from that and he thinks and he concludes, God created man first, gave him the governance of the garden, brought woman in alongside him as his helper because God wanted the man to go ahead and take the lead. Now, you got to decide, are you going to go with Paul in that or not? And it's unbelievable to me how many evangelicals say hogwash. They just say hogwash. To Paul's reasoning. I think it's right. I think it is good reasoning. Because if I ask, if, if I were God, and in the way I created man and woman, I wanted to communicate an absolute egalitarianism where the roles were parallel, I would have created them simultaneously. Why mix it up? Why do it the way he did it if you really wanted to be clear on this issue and say that the man has no primary responsibility for leadership? Isn't, isn't it an easy way to say the man has primary responsibility for leadership because God put him there first and brought the woman in after? Now, you can call that into question. You can say, well, the animals came before the woman, so the animals are leaders and, and, uh, and she's not. I mean, that's the, that's the standard way of debunking this argument. And my response to that is twofold. Number one, it would never enter the Hebraic mind that God was considering those animals as leaders in relationship to the man. And two, the law of primogeniture, the firstborn, didn't apply to the cattle in the family. It applied to the sons and daughters in the family. In other words, just because a man had cattle before he had children doesn't mean the cattle get the, the, the inheritance. And Jews knew that. They would, they would listen to this argument and they would kind of look, what? We're talking persons here. And when a, when a son is born first, the second son gets a different blessing than the first son. The primary, the order of things was clear in the Jewish mind. And so there were cultural and textual pointers to those readers that, uh, there is significance in the order. The second argument is Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. And became a transgressor. Now, 
the historic interpretation of that has been women are more deceivable and gullible than men, and therefore they shouldn't be put in a position of doctrinal leadership because they're going to be led more easily into error. Now, I wonder if that's what that means. Ooh, get yourself crucified. If that were what you taught on this passage. Um, I doubt that that's what this means. I'll try to give you an alternative interpretation, but let me let me put in a parenthesis here to say that even if that were what it means, it may not sound as offensive as you think. Let me try something on you. Um, if somebody were to ask me, are women more vulnerable to deception than men? You know what I would answer? Um, I think they are more vulnerable than men to deception in some areas, and I think men are more vulnerable to deception than women in other areas. And if you were to ask me, are women weaker than men? I wouldn't immediately so obviously. You know, women don't compete against men in almost any sport for one very simple reason. The men would always win. But I would not answer that way. I I would answer by saying women are weaker than men in some ways and men are weaker than women in some ways. If you ask me about are women smarter than men, I went to Wheaton and I would almost be inclined to say, obviously, because the, the women at Wheaton are uh, the screen of getting into Wheaton is so much higher for women than it is for men that they ruin the curve in every class. They just they're so smart. And I, I, grew, I was in a high school class with 368 people. And I was 20th. And the 19 ahead of me were women. So it never entered my mind that men are smarter than women. I would incline to think the other way. But I would never answer that way either. I would always say in some ways women are smarter than men. And in some things men are smarter than women. Now here's, here's what I'm getting at. It's real easy and naive to try to line up a list of weaknesses of masculinity and line up a list of weaknesses of femininity, and then say, the one is better than the other. You know what I think would happen if you you were God and you knew them all and you understood them to their root, and you lined up the plus and minus of strength and weakness, strength and weakness, strength and weakness, strength and weakness, strength and weakness for men, and you tallied them up at the bottom, subtracting the weaknesses, adding the strengths, the number you're going to get at the bottom I think is going to be the same. But the weaknesses and the strengths in each column are going to be different. And here's the the exciting part. This is why I like the word complementarity. If you took the lists and you laid them on top of each other, the complementarity of it would be wonderful. In fact, I think the reason there are these so-called perceived weaknesses and strengths is because a man's weaknesses are meant to call forth a woman's strengths And a a woman's weaknesses are meant to call forth a man's strengths so that there is a complementary meshing. 
rather than a being at odds or two people insisting they have exactly the same uh, traits trying to form a relationship. Let me illustrate something just to, to uh, show you more clearly what I mean. Statistics that I've read say that six times more men than women are arrested for drug abuse. Ten times more men than women are arrested for drunkenness. Eighty-three percent of all serious crimes in America are committed by men. Twenty-five times more men than women are in jail. Virtually all rape is committed by men. Okay, so women manifestly are superior beings, right? (laughs) I mean, there is a remarkable problem with manhood. I mean, it's an awesome problem, the wickedness of the abuse of manhood. Now, lest you women get too carried away, your sins are just of another more subtle and less open and uh, powerful kind. But God sees us all. When you lay those two out beside each other, the weaknesses and the strengths, I think the number you get at the bottom is the same. Um, now, that was a parenthesis around this issue of Adam was not deceived, but the woman And I'm saying I'm not sure that means women are more gullible than men, therefore they shouldn't be pastors. I doubt that that's the argument here. Let me tell you why. Now, this will put on your thinking caps for about five minutes here because I'm going to think with you about Genesis 2 and 3. Let's go back there and ask what we can mean. In what sense was man not deceived? I mean, he ate the fruit, engages the woman in conversation. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God made. And he said to the woman. Now, there's a clue there. His subtlety and the one he chooses to address. Okay? Just bear that in mind. Second observation is this. Adam was evidently with Eve when that happened. He didn't sneak up and find Eve by herself. Adam was with her. Now, why do I think that? A couple of reasons. If you look at verse 6, it says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her. Nowhere in verses 1 to 6 does it say she went and found him and brought him. Nowhere does it say he arrived on the scene. The assumption without any break in the flow is that Adam was with her, listening. Then if you go over to chapter 3, verse 17, you find that God disapproves not just of the fact that they ate the fruit, but of the dynamics of the relationship that were happening. And this is we're getting right at the crucial essence of what I think Paul was after here. Genesis 3.17, God says to the man after the fall, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, 
She did not say a word to him in, in chapter two. Not a word. What is, what is, what does God mean? Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. What, what does he mean? Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. She didn't say, come on, Adam, eat. She didn't say a word. Verse six. The only word she says in chapter two is words to the Satan, to, to the serpent. I take it to mean, therefore, that Adam was there and he was listening and he heard her talking and he let her take the lead. He didn't defend. He didn't protect. He didn't intervene. He didn't assume responsibility. And at the very outset, something was going awry in the relationship. So I think the subtlety of Satan was precisely this. He knew what God had established in chapter two, namely that the man was to assume a special burden of responsibility for the moral life of the garden. He knew that man was called upon to be strong and protect and care for this woman. And therefore, he comes up, he stands, here's the man, here's the woman. He glances at the man and looks away from him, defies his role in his silence to the man, mocks his leadership and engages the woman and draws her in to the leadership role while the two are together. And when they both give in to that deterioration or dismantling of what God had ordained, the fall happens. Therefore, here's what I think Paul means in First Timothy 2.14. I think he means when it says Adam was not deceived. He means Adam was not approached by the deceiver and engaged in direct conversation to do dealings. The deceiver was very subtle in not engaging the man, but rather defying God's order and taking up the woman and putting her in the position of spokesman and leader. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. That is, she's the one who took up dealings with the deceiver. She's the one who was led into direct interaction with him and became the directly deceived, while the man was abdicating his responsibility, just as guilty, maybe more, Standing there so that the point of the verse is the, the first half of the verse or the verse 13, Adam was created first, says God in his created order initi- um, said to the man, take initiative because I have taken the initiative to put you there first. And then when it came to the fall, God said the reason things have collapsed between man and woman, the reason there is such deterioration in the world, the reason there is such abdication of responsibility and abuse of responsibility from men is because at the very beginning, this is what happens when you exchange roles. This is what happens when a woman puts herself forward or a man abdicates responsibility in an area where they are meant to operate in a different kind of complementarity. So my my summary then of this whole unit is that men, godly, spiritual, humble, Christ-like men are called to be the overseers 
who bear the primary responsibility of leadership in the church, that women and men are called in alongside them to assist them in realizing the vision that God gives to the church with the hundreds and hundreds of kinds of ministries that are open to men and women in touching the lives of people. And the reason for this is not culture, and the reason for this is not sin. The reason for this is that God created it that way, verse 13, and when that way is defied and broken, there comes collapse, deception, and ruin into the world, verse Verse 14. Now, let me take just a few minutes, even though I I see I'm I'm getting near the limit here, perhaps, uh, and go beyond the church. Because if what I've said is right, if I'm if I'm anywhere near the truth, then the reasons for why we relate the way we do in the church. And tomorrow you'll see it even more clearly, I hope, from Ephesians five in marriage. The reasons why we relate the way we do is because of Creation. God made us to be a certain way, not because of culture and not because of sin. Sin distorts these relationships, but it doesn't create these relationships. And so what I've tried to do in this book, what's the difference, is answer the question I gave this morning. What is at the heart of femininity and what is at the heart of masculinity And then what are the implications for the battlefield? What are the implications for the business world? And I can only briefly touch on these tonight, but uh, let me do that. Uh, Let me give you the definitions that I have in here and send you to the book for all the nuanced exposition. Here's my definition of manhood. Okay, have you I wonder if you've ever heard anybody risk a definition of masculinity and then femininity, and answer the 11-year-old's question. Mommy, what does it mean to be a woman and not a man? Daddy, what does it mean to be a man and not a woman? So I'm going to try anyway. Take masculinity first. At the heart of mature masculinity is a sense, and what I do in this book is take every one of these words, sense, and I've got a page on that, and every word that that comes in the rest of this definition, I have pages explaining it. Masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide, and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's different relationships. That would take hours to unpack. Let me translate it into an 11-year-old answer. My son Abraham is, I mean, my son Barnabas is 10. So if he were to ask me, sitting over here, if he were to ask me, Daddy, what does it mean to grow up and be a man and not a woman? I would say it means that you grow up to be a strong, humble person who feels a special responsibility toward women. To see that good things that need to get done, get done. And a special responsibility that they be safe in your presence. And a special responsibility that they have what they need, especially when they're close to you and have a special relationship with you. And here I would use this illustration. If when you grow up and you marry and things aren't going well in your family 
and Jesus comes to your front door and rings the doorbell. And your wife goes to answer the door and she opens it and Jesus is standing there. Jesus is going to say to her, is the man of the house home? He won't say first, you and I have something to deal with. He's going to say, is the man of the house home? You know why I think that? Because when God knocked in chapter two of Genesis, what did he say after the fall? He said, Adam, where are you? Eve was the one who went down first. But he didn't say, Eve went down first, where are you, Eve? He said, Adam, where are you? Now, why did he do that? I was listening to a tape just the other day of Gilbert Bilizikian critiquing me and Wayne Grudem in our book. And I was so glad I heard a woman raise her hand. I mean, I didn't hear her raise her hand. <laughs> I assume she raised her hand because she butted in and she asked him a question. What about their point that God comes to the man first after the fall and holds him accountable, even though Eve was the one who seemed to deal with the deceiver and sin first? And all he could say was, I don't think it has any significance. I think it has significance. So my little 10-year-old, when you grow up, Jesus comes to your door, he's going to say, is the man of the house home? And then Jesus is going to say to you, you know, there's some leadership issues that probably account for why your wife is acting the way she's acting. And if you were a better husband, if you did things right, if you were humbler, if you spent more time with her, if you cared more for her, if you didn't speak so carelessly with her, if you put down the newspaper when she's talking to you, she would probably not react the way she's reacting and the kids wouldn't be acting out the way they're acting at. We need to talk. And somebody told me in the faculty reception this afternoon, don't you think that you need to put uh, a lot of focus on what men ought to be today? And I said, I put almost all focus on what men ought to be today. Because I think if men were the kind of men that the Bible calls you to be in the church and the home most of our problems would be solved. I don't go around telling women to be, women to be submissive. You, you really don't need to be. I think it's so built into a woman to delight in godly, humble leadership of men they admire and respect that the real issue is can we get men to be men? Here's my, here's my definition of uh, femininity or uh, womanhood. At the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture. Notice that positive element. To affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's different relationships. Meaning, you don't relate to the postman the way you relate to a pastor, the way you relate to a husband, the, re- the way you relate to a son. In all those man relationships, there are different ways that this definition works its way out. Let me read it again. Femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm and receive and to nurture strength and leadership 
from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's different relationships. Now, I don't have a daughter, but if I did and she asked me what does it mean to be a woman and not a man, I would try to say um, it means to grow up and be a wise and caring person. So I start the answer both with the boy and the girl in the same way. Grow up and to be a wise and a caring person who feels a special desire, a special calling to give good men a lot of backing, a lot of encouragement, a lot of support for the special responsibility they have from God to be leaders and protectors and providers. It means that you become a creative partner. To help men, help men carry through the goals of the relationship in which you find yourselves. Now, here comes the really controversial part that will catapult us for the last few minutes into the business world and the battlefield. If you, I'm still talking to my little daughter now. If you have a leadership role in the world that makes men the recipients of your influence, You can think of a hundred examples, okay, right off the bat. You will seek to exercise this role in a way that does not compromise the deep sense of responsibility that belongs to their manhood. (laughs) Now, what in the world, you know, how how in the world are you going to do that? Should women be drill sergeants in the army? Should women be the umpire behind home plate in Major League Football? See right! Why are you Between fighting. Should, should women fly MiG jets in the Persian War? Should we have lost five women in combat in the Persian Gulf War? My answer to the business world is an indirect answer that will probably satisfy nobody because I, I cannot give you a list of man's jobs and woman's jobs. I think that would be a hopeless enterprise that would never work. There are peripheral things. In other words, I would argue that a woman shouldn't be a drill sergeant in the face of an 18-year-old kid or a 35-year-old man chewing him out and telling him to do 41 push-ups and just, you know, um, and I'll argue that a woman shouldn't serve on the front lines of the infantry. Uh, But I can't, in the thousands of jobs in between there, give you a list. So here's what I do. On the basis of what I've seen in the created order, I would say all relationships between men and women in the business world find themselves on two continuums, a continuum of personal to non-personal and a continuum of directive to non-directive. And to the degree that a woman's relationship to a man in the business world is directive, it needs to be non-personal. And to the degree that it is personal, it needs to be non-directive. Now, here, let me give you an illustration because that probably maybe isn't clicking. I can picture a woman architect 
who spends almost all of her days over a drawing board creating detailed uh, systems of heating and electrical and structural dimensions of a building. She hands over these blueprints to about 5,000 men to build a skyscraper and virtually controls their activity for the next six months because she drew it and they follow it. And I would see no problem with that. Why? Because there is no personal dimension. It is not the woman there over him every day telling him, do this, do that, do this, do that. It is being mediated through this piece of paper, and so it's non-directive. Same thing, say, with a woman traffic planner who designs which streets are one way and which are two way and where the stoplights are and how they go on and off. And She's a civil engineer or something like that. So men, all day long, tens of thousands of them are stopping and starting and driving in directions because she decided which way they're going to go. And I don't see any problem with that. Why not? Well, because she is there's no personal sexual gender dimension in it. However, on the other hand, there are personal relations. I think in your face drill sergeants is very personal. I think marriage is very personal, and you can come up with others. I threw out the, the umpire thing. Um, I don't have much stake in that. But you can imagine the kinds of personal relations and personal dimensions in which a woman, if she's not going to call the man's sense of responsibility into question, is going to have to have a demeanor that affirms him. Here's here's the initiative, the illustration I tried to think of. Say a woman is a bank loan uh, manager. She negotiates mortgages. She sits at a desk in a bank and she helps people get mortgages so they can buy their house. And there's a man who drives a truck for a career business. And basically he runs between banks and others institutions and he walks in and asks her what she wants him to do and she says I would like you to take this first bank and give it to Ms. so-and-so and he does it okay now can how can this work if by nature men feel special responsibility to lead and to care for to protect women and women in their submission, are to affirm that and receive that and nurture that. And I believe that it's possible for a woman in that kind of role and a man in that kind of role to relate in such a way that she deals with him, speaks with him, and affirms him in ways that exalt his manhood and he honors her womanhood. This is where it gets real risky for me to try to give you specific examples because you can always think, oh, that's hokey or something. But um, I can easily imagine them talking and her thanking him for doing such an excellent job. Or after work, she sees him in the parking lot and she has to walk downtown Minneapolis up onto the second level of the dark um, parking ramp. And she says, you know, I'd rather not go up there alone. Would you mind walking me to my car? And all of a sudden, even though he's the he's the one who has taken 
the instruction for where to carry this, she says, I want to look to you for protection here. And there are other ways that I think women in the business world can creatively affirm a man. She might inquire about his wife and his children and affirm him in his leadership there. She might talk about the way he's moving and behaving in the company in a way that affirms that and so on. With regard to the battlefield, um, I won't bother reading this long quote I have here from one of the generals that I wrote down, but basically... uh, I find that there were 35,000 women in the Persian Gulf and five were killed as reprehensible. I find it as reprehensible, an indictment of manhood in America. The Minneapolis Tribune in my city wrote April of this year, quote, the Gulf record has helped explode the myth that women are less able to succeed or sacrifice in the service of their country. That was never a myth. Nobody ever doubted it. And then they went on and added this. It's senseless to forbid women to use in combat the skills they already use daily Like their male counterparts, female soldiers should be allowed to perform any task of which they are capable. Now, that is vintage argumentation today. Competency is all that matters to these people. They are simply denying massive underlying realities. This general here says what's being denied is nature and what men are. Namely, men, he thinks, I think he's right, I think it's rooted in God and not culture, not sin. Men have built into them a sense of responsibility to take a special initiative in protecting women. And you put them side by side on the battlefield, you can bet your bottom dollar if he has any ounce of manhood in him, he won't. Treat her the same way he treats the buddy on the other side. He will feel, I must be careful for her. And what the Tribune is trying to do is get men to deny one of the most noble features of their manhood, namely this inbred sense that I will fight for her. I will protect her. It has nothing to do with her competency. She may shoot better, drive the tank better, fly the airplane better, no computers better. That's irrelevant. I am called as man to protect. Here's the illustration. I'll close with this. Uh, that I use when I taught at Bethel. Just picture yourself now. You're on a date. Uh, you finish studying at the library. You're going to go over to McDonald's across the highway and get ice cream or something. And you're walking across campus. And this guy jumps out with a knife, threatening you both. And I ask the guys, now really, really tell me, if this has happened three times, And uh, let me get this mathematics right here. She jumped out the first time and took the initiative to disarm the guy. And you jumped out the second time and took the initiative to disarm the guy. And uh, she jumped out the, the third time. Say it's the fourth time now. He says, go ahead, it's your turn. Take him. 
just because it's got to be equal, you know, can't put her down by jumping out to protect her. I said, really now, does your masculinity, is it just a cultural thing? Is there nothing built into you guys that at that moment would feel some kind of special responsibility to take the initiative? And then I complicate matters by saying, suppose she has a black belt in karate and you're a real wimp. And you know she could just go whack and and, uh, and he'd be on his back. At that moment, I don't think that would make any difference. If you said, you got the black belt, go ahead. <laughs> Everything in you would cry out, wimp, you're not a man, what's wrong with you? And I don't think that's culture. I know I'll be told that's culture. I think it's built right into who we are, a sense of taking initiative and responsibility to protect and provide. And I have no problem, women, with when he throws himself for your sake at him, if you get in there and finish the job off. <laughs> That's no problem at all. You, you might have to do that. Many women have said men lunging out, doing something crazy because they think it's needed, and women with smarter way to fix it, you know, hits the guy over the head or, <laughs> or something. That's that's okay. What 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 is needed for that man and that woman is to feel a kind of choreography in their relationship that affirms who they are as male and female. Well, I hope tomorrow morning when we look at Ephesians five, I can provide a broader biblical foundation for this nature rootedness of the differences I'm suggesting. And I realize that I'm leaving open a whole range of differences in the way you work this out in the business world, the way it gets worked out in the battlefield, the way it gets worked out at home. And, and I'm not interested in writing scripts for men and women. I'm interested in basic principles. The way Noel and I work out our marriage is not by writing out, this is man thing, this is woman thing, this is man thing, this is woman thing, but rather me taking, I Hope, a spiritual, biblical responsibility with initiative and devotions, initiative in prayer, initiative in worship, initiative in discipline, initiative in finances, bearing the burden of the family and how it works. And then letting the details of who vacuums on any given night fall into where it will. That's not a big issue. When she goes away, like she did for the last 10 days, I do everything. I wash the clothes and I wash the dishes and I vacuum the floors and I make sure the boys are off to school and I don't feel my manhood compromised at all. Well, I got to stop. I could just keep rambling on and on. Let me close with prayer. Father in heaven, I just pray that these these scattered thoughts that I hope are rooted there in First Timothy two will bear fruit now in in healthy wholesome, happy, God-honoring, deeply satisfying relationships for married and single people over the next decades of their lives here. May you be glorified in the way we relate to one another as male and female. In Jesus' name, amen.